0: Psalm twenty five in God's Holy Word, Psalm twenty five, a Psalm of David. It's a beautiful Psalm. It's actually in a crosstic arrangement following the Hebrew alphabet, so you can't see that in the English, of course. But that's how it's structured. And it's a, I think, a beautiful illustration of what a believer persevering in God's grace, looks like it's not a life of sinlessness. It's not a life free of all enemies. It's not an easy life, but it's a blessed life. Because it's assured that God is good, and he's going to guide me all the way to heaven. Psalm 25, a psalm of David, God's word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The seeker of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness Preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. God's holy word. Let's take out the Smaller Forms and Prayers book in front of us and turn to page 278. We're in the Canons of Dort, one of our confessions. Page 278 brings us to the fifth main point of doctrine, which, which is uh, the fifth point of the five points that we've been studying, and so we're coming to the end of it here, and we're looking at the first three articles here this evening on page 278. Article 1 says, those people whom God, according to his purpose, calls into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, he also frees from the reign and slavery of sin though in this life not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin. Article 2, hence daily sins of weakness arise, and blemishes cling even to even the best works of God's people, giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, To put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness. And to strain toward the goal of perfection until they are freed from this body of death and reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. And then Article 3. Because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan... Those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources, but God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. Our confession based on scripture. Let's bow and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to sing hymns proclaiming your sovereign love and how we're safe in it. And we're glad tonight to read your word and to hear the believer speak as led by your spirit. And we're grateful, Lord, to make confession in the canons of door with the saints who've gone before us and who have proved your word true, for you have kept them. And now we pray, Lord, as those who ourselves need fresh encouragement and strength. As those who long to know more deeply the grace of assurance, we pray that you'd visit our hearts and we pray you'd have special regard for any who are struggling, doubts and fears. Let your word be preached in truth and received with the amen of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, we come tonight to what is really the capstone of these wonderful truths, these doctrines of grace that we have been considering. We're looking at what's called sometimes the perseverance of the saints, which means that God so preserves the Christian, he causes the believer to, to persevere in the faith all the way to heaven. Now, we've seen so far that, that God does three things, right? We've studied what we call an unconditional election, that God, before the creation of the world, chose us in Christ to be saved, that God, surveying the, the host of humanity, fallen, rebellious, that God chose some of those to save them. He did that. And then we took note of the reality that God, the Father, sent his beloved Son to die for those whom he chose, to give us life on the cross, to fully atone for their sins and to purchase for them eternal salvation. Christ died for us when we were yet enemies And then we saw that we, though dead in sin, without any ability to come to God, to cry out to God, without any capacity to believe on God, in fact, when we hated God, the Spirit of God came into our hearts and gave us new life. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born again. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now the capstone on all of that is this last one, that God has done all of this, will surely do the final thing. He'll bring us all the way to glory. He'll take us all the way home. In some sense, of course, this is the logical necessity of all the other ones. If God chose us in Christ for salvation, he, it makes sense, of course, he has to bring us all the way home. If, if Christ died to purchase for us salvation and he took upon himself that calling that he would lose none of the ones the Father gave him, then he must bring them to glory. And if the Spirit came into our hearts and sealed us for the day of redemption, then he must see to it that we arrive at the day of full redemption. But we should never take this for granted. As logical and necessary as it is, it's an amazing and a wonderful truth. And it's actually in some ways quite unique. Dr. Robert Godfrey, a URC pastor and the former president and church history professor at Westminster, Westminster Seminary in California, he in his book on the canons, he writes, the doctrine of perseverance embraced by the Reformed was perhaps their most unique doctrine. The uniqueness lay in their teaching that the believer could know that he would persevere by the grace of God. There's many who don't believe that, understand that. Roman Catholics believe that that nobody can have assurance of salvation, nobody can be certain they're going to arrive at the end, in Christ Jesus, except a select few who receive an extra revelation from God telling them so. Everyone else, you have to keep working and you'll see if maybe you make it. The Arminians, against whom the canons of Dort were written, in the year 1610, they claimed they weren't sure about this doctrine. They didn't couldn't decide either way. But by the time of the Synod of Dort, eight or nine years later, they had decided, at least many of them had decided against it. They rejected it. Many have this view that if you believe that, 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 that God has saved you and therefore you will be saved to the end, it creates a moral laxity. Then if you know you're going to heaven, you'll just go on sinning because you're going to heaven anyway. There are many today in, in our own country believers who are very confused about this who say things like as one denomination does that that if you resist the the word for a while you you may fall away from the lord or or say things like you know no one can snatch you out of god's hand but you can jump out you yourself can take yourself out of god's grace but the bible teaches something different that's remarkably comforting And it's very important because to live without the assurance that we are safe in God's sovereign love is not a very happy life. The great joy of the Christian life and the thing that motivates us and thrills us and fuels our worship is this, is that God has made us his own and he'll never, never forsake us. That he who began the good work on us will carry it on to completion. That God will not forsake the work of his hands. That God will complete what he's begun. That none shall snatch us out of his hand. We've been sealed for the day of redemption by the Spirit. That God is faithful and he will do it. This is the great comfort of the Christian. Let's look tonight at how the Lord of the Covenant preserves his saints by causing them to humbly flee to him for refuge. I'd like to take note of three points. First of all, the believer's happy conflict. The believer's happy conflict. And then secondly, the believer's humble cries. Psalm 25 is filled with those. The believer's humble cries. And then thirdly, the believer's hearty confidence. Hearty confidence. Those three points. Happy conflict, humble cries, and hearty confidence. Well, first of all, the happy conflict we have. When we we use the language of perseverance of the saints, we should be very clear on what a saint is. A saint is not... What the Roman church has described, a special subset of the most holy person who did miracles and all the sorts of things and needs to be canonized as a saint. No. In the Bible, a saint is every believer in Christ Jesus. It's it's those who are holy. A saint is a holy one. If you're in Christ, you've been set apart. You are holy unto God. A saint is not a sinless one. That's really the point. A saint is not a sinless one. But instead, a saint is someone who experiences a happy conflict. A happy conflict. Article 1 of this fifth section of the Canons of the it makes two points. It makes the point, number one, that that if you've been called by Christ Jesus, been called by God in a fellowship with Christ, then you've been set free from the dominion and the bondage of sin. If you've been called out, you are a holy one. If the Spirit has given you new life, you are not in bondage to sin. You never have to say this sin, yes, you are my master, I must obey you. You never have to say that. But, though the chains have fallen off. The second thing Article 1 teaches us is that we're not entirely free from sin. The remains of that old man of sin are with us. We still have that sin nature, and so we are engaged in a lifelong contest against sin. You say, why didn't God totally free me from sin when he saved me? Well, he's going to do that at Christ's coming or at our death. Why didn't he do it now? Well, we don't know the full answer to that. We do know that God has willed to cause us to appreciate his grace and to grow in our knowledge and love for him through a life of struggle, in our weakness to know his strength. We don't always enjoy that. In fact, it's a great grief to us, and it should be, right? We hate sin, and we, we live in a culture that wants quick and easy fixes. And so to hear that, that the path is not an instantaneous fix, but it's a, it's a long road, can be a bit daunting, discouraging. We have to remind ourselves, and we have to teach the children of the church that the Christian life Is not a snap-your-finger kind of thing. It's going to be trials. It's going to be struggles. You're going to have to eat from God's hand and believe on Him and trust in Him and repent and live this life of struggling daily against our sin. And yet, it's a happy conflict. It's a happy conflict. Painful, yes, but happy because the presence of enemies means that we're the Lord's. We are the Lord's. So David in the Psalm 25 is very aware of his enemies, right? He, he mentions them in verse 2, Let not my enemies triumph over me. And then he, he mentions them again in verse 19, Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hate. But praise be to God, David has enemies. All right? Praise be to God, David has enemies. Think of the alternative. Think of the alternative. If you have no enemies, if you have no conflict... Then you must be a friend with sin. You must be a friend of the devil. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, right, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they went over to the devil's side. They, they betrayed their best friend, God, and went to Satan's side, and, and they became friends with him. But God didn't leave it there. God came down from heaven, and he said, oh, no, and he put them back on his side, and he put that dividing line, that antithesis, that, that warfare. He said there's going to be enmity between these two sides, And that was an act of grace. And that's a happy conflict. It was at great cost. God promised the woman would have a son who would crush the serpent, who would do the battle. And God gave his own beloved son who suffered under enemy hands at the cross and even bore the strokes of God's hand of justice upon our sin. And that blood of Jesus made us friends of God, it reconciled us to God, and it made us enemies of sin and Satan and the world. And that's a good thing. So, our enemies remind us we belong to the Lord. Picture a band of soldiers making their way along the path and bickering with each other. They look pretty divided, but when the enemy starts shooting at them, they figure it out real quickly. If they're shooting at us, they're our enemies, then we must be on the same side, we must be friends. And in our walk with the Lord, as we face the conflict and the enemies, we're reminded that we belong to the Lord. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if they hate you, then remember that you're on Christ's side. So the conflict is good in that one sense. Just like feeling pain is no pleasant thing. And if you express to the doctor the pain you're suffering, well, you have this one consolation. At least you're feeling the pain. could be worse. Would we trade places tonight with a person whose conscience is seared and has no remorse for his sin and feels no conflict? Would we trade places tonight for the one who sleeps well at night, even though he's under the wrath of God, doesn't care? Would we trade places tonight for the one who is not harassed at work because he's just like all the other unbelievers, we trade places tonight for the one who, who is not harassed by the evil one, because the evil one already owns him. David is aware of his enemies. They are many, and they hate him with cruel hate. But because the enemies hate him with cruel hate, David can begin his psalm with verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Because I can't lift my soul up to them and they hate me, then I know I can lift my soul up to you, because I belong to you. I belong to you. So the perseverance of the saints is not the perseverance of the sinless. It's the perseverance of those who are enduring the happy and painful conflict. They're hated by Satan. They're hated by the world. They struggle against their own sin nature. But they can appeal to God. They can appeal to God. The believer's happy conflict. But then notice, secondly, tonight... Out of that then must arise the believer's humble cries. The believer's humble cries. Article 2 speaks of the body of sin, language of of Romans, the weakness of sin. And it says that, that daily sins of weakness arise, blemishes clinging even to the best of our works. And so it gives us continual cause to humble ourselves before God To flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication, and to strain towards that great day of perfection. There's at least four things there. Let me comment on on each of them. First of all, it speaks of humbling ourselves, right? Continual cause to humble ourselves before God. The perseverance of the saints is not the path of the proud, is it? No, the old nature's proud. The old nature says, I can do it. The old nature says, I'm strong enough. The old nature says, I'm doing fine. But the way of the saint is the way of humility. Because our very best works are blemished. There's sin in in our prayers. There's sin in our worship. There's sin in everything we do. And so there's no room for pride. And if we're tempted to a superiority over those around us, then we have to remember what the Catechism says, that that even the holiest men in this life have just a small beginning in the new obedience. The holiest men that have ever been have just a small beginning in the, in the life of new obedience. We're all, we're all just getting started. Psalm 25 is, is, is a psalm of David, a man after God's own heart. But, but David is very aware of his, of his sins, right? He says in verse six, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. Verse seven, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. And he speaks again in verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive, forgive all my sins. David is not saying, you know, God, it's it's everybody out there. They're all the trouble. But David is also saying, Lord, it's me. I'm the trouble. There's a traitor within my heart. I I betray you, God. So we need a humble heart. The pathway of perseverance is the path of humility. But secondly, the confession speaks of seeking refuge in Christ, crucified, in Christ alone. So you read Psalm 25. David has his eyes fixed on the Lord, right? That's where he's looking. It's, it's the Lord. It's not himself. He, he begins the Psalm, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And then he says in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. That's it. That's, that's all there is for me. My God, my Savior. That's, that's all I have. That's the only one who can deliver. And we're, we're called to a life of fleeing for refuge to Jesus Christ. God has provided for us a complete Savior, and we're to seek refuge in Him. And and He's our God-given deliverer. And the Father would not have given His Son if there was any other one who could rescue us. If there was any other who was going to be sufficient for us, God would not have devoted His Son to the cross. But God did, and that means we need Him. And God did, and that means He's enough. God didn't give us half a Savior. Jesus Christ's blood is fully sufficient to atone for all of our sins. You know the Lord's Supper is such a marvelous thing, and I I love our Lord's Supper forms, where right? I take eat or take eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. It's profound, isn't it? broken for the complete forgiveness of all of my sins. We're to run to Christ daily. It's our calling. He's always waiting. He's always reminding us that he's sufficient for us. He's always glad to tell us that he took up a task to redeem the elect, and he pledged before his Father that he would lose none of the ones the Father had given him, but bring them safely to glory. Christ is the only one who died to remove our sins, to purchase for us the gift of the Spirit, the only one who arose for our justification, the only one who overcame Satan and death for us. Thirdly, the article 2 speaks of supplication. Seeking Christ through prayer. It says, Hence daily sins of weakness arise, blemishes cling to our best work. So we have to humble ourselves, flee to Christ, and put to death more and more the flesh by the spirit of supplication. It's not a word we use a lot, but supplication means earnest and humble prayer. Begging of God, as it were. We come as beggars knocking on the door with our empty hands. One of the ministers of our classes, I heard him tell the story of his seminary professor. He went to a different seminary than I did, but he, his seminary professor grew up in a home that was rather poor, I guess, and, and they sometimes had beggars knocking on their door, and, and one night at the supper, supper time, they're seated at the table, there's a knock at the door, and his father goes to the door, and he comes back and tells the mom, he says, there's a beggar at the door, he's asking for food, and she says, send him away, we don't have any more than he does. So the father goes back to the door and he tells the beggar. And as he's going to close the door, the beggar sticks his foot in the door and he says, Please, just just one slice of bread. And the man's moved, so he goes back to his wife's table and tells her what he said. And, and the wife says, I'll make him a sandwich. He's a real beggar. And you see, that's, that's what supplication is that we come praying to our God, not because it's just a duty and we need to go through this motion, but we come, as David did, saying, I've got nothing, Lord. I've got enemies, I've got sins, I've got weakness, I've got my doubts, I look to you alone. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who wanted her daughter healed, released from the demon that owned her? Jesus said, no, I've come for the children of Israel. Didn't come for the dogs, the Gentiles. And she said, you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Just a crumb. Just a crumb. And Jesus was amazed at her faith and cast the demon out of her daughter. Psalm 25 is filled with the cries of the saint. not a sinless one, a sinner who knows he needs the Lord. One commentator contrasts Psalm 1 and Psalm 25, he, he, he notes how these two psalms complement each other. Psalm 1 is the opening of the Psalter, right? And it, it says there's two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. But Psalm 1 is a didactic psalm, it's a teaching psalm, it's a wisdom psalm, and therefore it's, you wouldn't say it's passionate, it, it sounds rather reserved, just instructing. And the commentator points out that if you only had Psalm 1, you might think, well, okay, you just make the choice. I'm going to go the way of the righteous, and then, and then there you go. And it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward and easy from that way. I made the choice. Now I just walk in the choice. But Psalm 25 is the compliment because it says, oh, no, when you make that choice, look out. The battle starts, and it's difficult, and you need the Lord And you can't walk the path without the companionship and the friendship and the power of God. Psalm 25 teaches us how to pray along the path, doesn't it? David's often crying out here to the Lord, show me your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, teach me. John Calvin notes in his commentary that in the life of the believer there there are clouds, our enemies, our trials. There's clouds that roll in, and they make things very dark for us, very dark. And we can't, we can't see clearly, we can't see the path. We're tempted then to take a shortcut, the route of sin, We're tempted to react in a wrong way, to, to, to lose hope or become angry. What the Lord is telling us in the psalm is the clouds roll in. Your heart sinks down. And you can't see which way is up. Supplicate. Cry out to God. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And God loves to hear that prayer. But finally, Article 2 speaks of one more thing we must do, and that's the meditation on the future life. We must strain toward the goal of perfection till we're freed from this body of death and reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. We need to press on, and we need to press on with hope, seeing the end, the finish line. Colossians 3 says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You have to keep that always before you. There's a goal. There's a conclusion The battle doesn't go on forever. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Keep it before your eyes what you're going to be, and that hope is a purifying hope. It presses upon you the destiny God has for you, that you're going to shine in the glory of the Lord Jesus made like your Savior. So, so keep pressing on. Put sin to death. Don't be overcome by your enemies. Keep the goal in mind. And so the believer cries, Lord, lead me. Show me. Well, finally tonight, consider the believer's hearty confidence then. As we experience the conflict, as we cry out humbly to our God, We do all of this with great confidence. Article 3 of our confession says, Because of these remnants of sin, these remains of sin dwelling in us, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. Well, there it is. We would not make it apart from God. We could not make it apart from God. You believe that tonight? You would not arrive in heaven, but you would most certainly go to hell if God didn't keep you. You have three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and your own sinful nature. And, and any one of them would destroy you in a heartbeat. David says, let not my enemies triumph over me. They will triumph over me apart from you, Lord says in verse 19, they hate me with cruel hatred. They may come smiling. They've got a dagger behind their back. And we should remember that. But, as real and powerful as these enemies are, Article 3 ends with these words, but God is faithful. Mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. And there's the doctrine in a nutshell. That's the summary of the perseverance of the saints. That God is faithful. He so strengthens us and preserves us as to save us to the end. That language, but God is faithful, is found in different places in the Scripture, but those very words are found in 1 Corinthians 1, where the Apostle Paul is saying that we're, you're eagerly waiting for the revelation, for the coming of Jesus, uh, that you may be blameless in the day of, of Christ's coming. And then he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God called you into fellowship with Jesus Christ, and God is faithful He's not going to change his mind when he sought out to take hold of you and make you his own. When, when he sent you the Spirit to, to give you a new heart. He's not a fickle God who changes his mind about you tomorrow. God is faithful and he will see to it, confirming you to the day of Christ's coming. God is faithful. You know, Psalm 25 has, has words about the character of our God. The one who's preserving us, David understands, is not some higher power. What does that even mean? Is that a comfort for anyone, a higher power? Uh, What is it? Is it the wind in the sky? Is it the tornado? Is it the hurricane? People who've been through those things don't take comfort in a higher power. Is it the electricity in my wall? Well, the electricity in the wall does not care about me. Is the higher power Satan? Well, That's not very comforting. The Christian does not place hope in some abstract higher power, but in the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's shown himself in Christ to be faithful. So David, in verse 6, says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. And he prays in verse 7, don't remember my sins, but according to your mercy, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The reformer John Calvin in his psalms commentary is very wise, I think, because he points out that David here is He's pausing in the midst of his prayers to meditate upon the character of his God. To meditate upon the character of his God that he might return to the the path of prayer with renewed passion and confidence. Calvin writes, The faithful feel that their hearts soon languish in prayer unless they are constantly stirring themselves up to it by new encouragements. So rare and difficult a thing it is to persevere steadfastly and unwearied in this duty of prayer. So Calvin says it's like, well, we don't, most of us live by fire anymore, right? We've got gas furnaces or whatever, but for people who live by the fire, Calvin says it's like, Throwing another log on the, on the fire. You're, the fire goes out unless you feed it fuel all the time. And he says your prayer will die unless you keep taking fresh encouragement in the character of your God. And we could add to it your, your journey, your perseverance in the Christian life will die unless you keep adding fuel to it by remembering who your God is. God is faithful, God is good, God is kind. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. God loves to show you the way. God loves to lead you home. God loves to keep you because of his character. If I can appeal to Calvin once more, he makes the point on verse 8. That to think of God's goodness and uprightness. To think of it as something he exercises only to those who are the worthy ones who earn it is a very, quote, a very cold view of the character of God and of little advantage to sinners. If you think of God in verse 8, teaching the way only to those who are worthy, that's a very cold view of God's character and it will be no advantage to you. Calvin writes, and indeed, if the goodness of God did not penetrate to hell, no man would ever become a partaker of it. We do believe the goodness of God penetrated to hell. It's how we got saved, right? It's how we got saved. He scooped us out of hell. But why is it that when we get saved, as it were, that we then begin to think that, that the very mercies that lavished love and kindness upon us when we are completely undeserving are now inaccessible to us unless we live a good enough life. And if we stumble or fall, then God's not going to help me. I've got to get myself cleaned off and then he'll love me again. That's a cold view of God and of little help to sinners. God is telling us that when the clouds roll in and we lose our way, hearts are discouraged, we're tempted by sin, we've fallen to remember that he's good, that his loving kindnesses are from of old, That he's the God and Father of mercies. That he loves us in Christ. That he's gracious. Let's not flee from God, but to God. The same grace that chose us when we were God's enemies is the same grace that keeps us and bears with us It guides us. And so God is faithful, we confess tonight, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. God is faithful. He will do it. It's not that there won't be trials. Spurgeon said a man on a ship might be knocked down to the deck by wave after wave, but he never gets washed overboard. That's the Christian life. God will keep you. Sometimes people debate, should this be called the the perseverance of the saints, or should we call the doctrine the preservation of the saints? And some say we should call it the preservation of the saints because it's God who keeps us. And others say, no, we should call it the perseverance of the saints because we don't want any part of that cheap grace theology which says you can, you're going to go to heaven so you can just live in your sin. No, we have to persevere in the faith by God's grace. Well, however you call, the two go together as the psalm shows us, right? Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, the humble he teaches his way. God is the one preserving, but he's preserving us by causing us to walk in his ways. And so the late Dr. James Boyce wrote in his commentary, if David is to remain firm to the end, then he must be taught of God so that he will be enabled to walk in God's ways. This blessed truth of perseverance is not something that merely works itself out automatically or mechanically. Rather, it is something that requires responsible learning, obedience, faithfulness, trust, and deep reverence on our part. So we must persevere. But our comfort is not that we can persevere. It's that God preserves and gives us grace. The lives of the Christian prove the way of Psalm 25. We're nothing to look at, are we? Lives are often battered, beaten, Sorrows cling to God's people. Struggles. Doubts. But one by one. And all together. The saints of the Lord make their journey. Step by step by step. God teaching them. God guiding them. God picking them up. God wrapping his arms around them. God reaching out his hand to them. Kind Father, loving his children, relieving them when oppressed, lifting them up when thrown down, cheering and comforting them when they're sad, consoling them when they're afflicted, guiding them always, convicting them of sin leading them to repentance, reminding them of their hope, with them every day. The God who called us, refusing to let us go, but holding us tight in Jesus Christ all the way. That is the perseverance of the saints. That is the preservation of God. That is God the Father through Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. Defending and keeping His children for glory, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to you we give praise. We would not make it apart from you. You know that far better than we do. But we thank you. You teach it to us, and in our trials, you humble us to remind us that that the power is not found in us, the faithfulness is not found in us. It's found in you, God. We thank you for your eternal love. We thank you for your election. And for that fountainhead of election out of which has come a redeemer for us, a regenerating spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and the safekeeping all the way to glory. We praise you, Lord, and we pray that you would keep us, that you, good and upright, would teach us sinners your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.